0: All right, good morning. Happy Easter. This is certainly not how we as a church would have wanted to spend Resurrection Sunday. I'm an introvert, and even I miss you and long to gather again, but uh, praise Christ for the gift of technology that allows us at least this option of gathering virtually, even as we wait for something better to come, hopefully soon. But in the meantime, this semester, we've been talking about apologetics We've we've talked about things like whether or not absolute truth exists and what to think about evolution and how to respond to your crazy uncle's email espousing conspiracy theories like Jesus didn't really rise from the dead or the idea that the Catholic Church created the Bible to control people or the church decided what belonged in the Bible at the Council of Nicaea. You might be tempted to think or to just hit reply to all, With two words, fake news, but it would probably be good for us to have a bit more informed response, not only for our own hearts, but also to help our kids or neighbors as they are confronted by these distortions of the truth. This, I think, is one of the shortfalls, by the way, of the evangelical uh, church over the past century. We haven't done a great job of preparing our kids to go to college, or to read a newspaper, or to watch a show on National Geographic with a particular skeptical bent. It's unfortunate If the first time we hear about some of these questions is while sitting in a freshman philosophy class or reading something on Facebook, it makes these issues seem so scary when in reality they aren't. So the question we want to examine today is, what books didn't make it into the Bible? Now you might be thinking there are so many. Green Eggs and Ham, Lonesome Dove, Great Expectations, Harry Potter, Moby Dick. But that's not what we mean. No, we mean... What books that some people might think should be considered Scripture were left out? Are there any, quote, lost books of the Bible? Or better yet, books which weren't really lost but intentionally suppressed by the big bad Christians? So we'll begin by looking at the Old Testament and then we'll move into the New Testament. When it comes to the canon of the Old Testament, there are three different categories of books. First, you have books which everyone recognizes as canonical. By canonical, I just mean part of the actual Bible, the Word of God. Uh, Go back and listen to our teaching on canonicity if you want to be reminded of why it's called the canon of Scripture. By the way, that's why my boy is named canon, not because I'm a big fan of Civil War weaponry. But that's the first category, what books uh, everyone considers to be canonical. Second, You have these books which no one recognizes as canonical. And third are books which some have recognized as canonical. Let's look at each of those in turn. So first, books which everyone recognizes as canonical. Obviously, when I say everyone, I mean all Christians, not every single person, It should be evident that your agnostic buddy doesn't believe that any of the Old Testament is canonical. But what Old Testament books do all Christians believe to be part of the canon of Scripture? This would be the 39 books from Genesis to Malachi you have in your ESV or your NASB or your NIV or whatever it might be. By the way, a really helpful way to remember how many books are in the Old Testament, how many letters are in the word old, three, how many letters in Testament, i wait for you to count on your fingers. Nine. So three and nine equals 39. As a bonus, how about the New Testament? Well, how many letters in New? Also three. What about Testament? Still nine. What is three times nine? 27. So 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament for a grand total of 66. So the 39 books that you have in the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi are considered canonical by Protestants, Catholics, uh, in Eastern or Greek, Greek Orthodox traditions? What about books which no one has recognized as canonical? This would include a number of books that are mentioned in the Old Testament which, which uh, haven't survived for whatever reason. For instance, Exodus 24 mentions uh, a book of the covenant. And other books in the Old Testament mention uh, like the book of Jasher or the, uh, the book of the wars uh, of the Lord. Those were never considered to be a part of the canon, although they were helpful in Israel's history. Why don't we have copies of them today? I have no clue, except that in the providential wisdom of God, he determined they weren't necessary for his people to have permanently. Had God desired that we have them, we would have them, but he didn't, so we don't. But the biggest categories, uh, the biggest category of books which have not been recognized as canonical include what are called pseudepigrapha, which literally means false writing, and refers to books that typically bear a false attribution of, uh, of authorship. In other words, these are texts that were written under a false name or a name from someone famous from the past who is not the real author. So, for example, some dude wants to write a book, but he knows no one will read a book by Ralph, son of Doug, so he signs it with the name of someone famous, Elijah or Enoch or Moses. And there's no definitive list for which books are pseudepigraphal. uh, pseudepigraphal. Different scholars put different books into this category. But a few of the uh, more common examples include 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Enoch. If you watch the the movie Noah starring uh, Russell Crowe and Hermione Granger, then maybe you wondered, where do all those rock monsters come from? Well, 1st Enoch is the answer. In addition to those, you have the Sibylline oracles, 4th Ezra, 2nd and 3rd Baruch, Jubilees, uh, Psalms of Solomon, the Apocalypse of uh, Adam. You also have a book called The Assumption of Moses. And these are all pseudepigraphal, thus they're never viewed as canonical. There's no branch of Christianity that has ever considered them to be a part of the canon. The first Adam didn't write the Apocalypse of Adam. Moses didn't write the Assumption of Adam. Moses. So these are pseudepigraphal. They're false writings. But there is a question that often comes up in particular regarding uh, Enoch and the assumption of Moses in particular because the New Testament potentially alludes to both of them in Second Peter and in the book of Jude. So does the fact that the New Testament potentially alludes to them or reference them, does that mean that we should treat them as scripture? And the church has universally said, no, it does not. Well, why not? Well, first off, because the authors themselves don't say that they are Scripture. Whereas whenever you would have Paul or Peter quote something from Exodus or Psalms, typically what they would say is, as it is written in Scripture, they would explicitly say that the book that they're quoting is Scripture, but neither Jude nor Peter do so. Instead, they at best allude to the book. In fact, nowhere in the entire New Testament is a book referred to as Scripture that is not in our current Old Testament. In addition to that, the fact that the New Testament alludes to Enoch and the assumption of Moses doesn't mean that those books were considered authoritative and canonical for the same reason that when Paul quotes from pagan philosophers, that doesn't mean that those books should be considered biblical. Uh, For for an example of that, uh, look at Titus 1.12. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Well, there Paul is quoting, most likely, Epimenides, a 6th or 7th century B.C. Greek philosopher. So the fact that a book is referenced in the New Testament doesn't necessarily mean that it should be included in the Old Testament. But again, you have some books which everyone has considered canonical, 39 books of the Old Testament, You have some books that no one has, including the Old Testament Pseudepigrapha. And then you also have books which uh, some groups have considered canonical, while others have not. This would be what are often called the Apocrypha, which means secret or hidden. That was the name given to this collection of books by Jerome, who was the translator of the Vulgate, the 4th century uh, Latin translation of the Bible. And he believed that these books were helpful. They're helpful for ethical teaching but they're not authoritative for establishing uh, doctrine. Now, the Roman Catholic Church prefers to call these books deuterocanonical rather than apocryphal. Deuterocanonical means canonized second because the Catholics canonized them much later in history. In fact, they weren't officially canonized until 1546 at the Council of Trent by the Roman Catholic Church, and then only because Protestants were attacking certain teachings that we uh, find in them. More on that uh, here in a second. But what's uh, confusing is that the Roman Catholics do indeed use the word Apocrypha, but they use it to refer to the group of books that we just talked about, the Pseudepigrapha. So Roman Catholic, Greek Orthodox, and Protestants all use the term Apocrypha, but they mean different things, so it's really, really helpful. But don't blame me, blame the Catholics. Just kidding, blame the Catholics and the Greek Orthodox. Now, what are the Apocrypha or the Deuterocanonical books? Well, they're a collection of intertestamental books that that are books that were written between the close of the Old Testament and the opening of the New Testament. Uh, A collection of intertestamental books typically regarding Jewish history that appear in the original Latin translation of the Bible called the Vulgate and in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. But... And this is really important that you recognize this. They do not appear in the Hebrew Bible. What books are included? Again, an exact list depends on who you're talking to. The Eastern Orthodox and the Roman Catholic uh, Apocrypha uh, are a little bit distinct. The Eastern Orthodox in particular have a couple of extra books. But uh, in general, the Apocrypha includes things like Baruch, uh, Bell and the Dragon, which sounds like a book about Narnia, Ecclesiasticus, not to be confused with Ecclesiastes, First and second, Esdras, the letter of Jeremiah, Judith, the various books of the Maccabees, the prayer of Manasseh, Sirach, Song of the Three Jews, Susanna, Tobit, The Wisdom of Solomon. And those books probably range in date from about the 3rd century B.C. all the way to the 1st century A.D. And again, the Roman Catholic position and the Eastern Orthodox position for, uh, for many of these books is that they are considered canonical. So in 1546... The Roman Catholics at the, uh, at the Council of Trent said this, If anyone receives, uh, if anyone receive not as sacred and canonical the said books entire with all their parts, as they have been used to be read in the Catholic Church, and as they are contained in the old Latin Vulgate edition, and knowingly and deliberately con- uh, condemn the traditions aforesaid, let him be anathema. So take that, Protestant. Take that, Parkway Church. If you don't receive Bell and the Dragon as being canonical, you are damned by the 16th century Roman Catholic Church. Happy Easter. On the other hand, you have the Protestant position, which is that these are not considered canonical. Uh, For for instance, the 39 Articles of the Church of England says, and the other books, as Jerome saith... The church doth read, for example, of life and instruction of manners, but yet, yet doth uh, it not apply them to establish any doctrine. The Belgic Confession of 1561, the church may certainly read these books and learn from them as far as they agree with the canonical books, but they do not have such power and virtue that one could confirm, them, uh, confirm from their testimony any point of faith or of the Christian religion. And then the Westminster Confession of Faith, 1647, The books commonly called Apocrypha, not being of divine inspiration, are no part of the canon of Scripture, and therefore are of no authority in the church of God, nor to be uh, otherwise approved or made use of than any other human writings. So why don't we Protestants recognize their authority or consider them canonical? It's a great question There's at least six different uh, reasons. There's a lot more than that, but at least six of them. Number one, it wasn't a part of the original Hebrew Bible. We mentioned that before. Jews had an existing Old Testament. They called it the Bible, and it didn't include the Apocrypha. In fact, they thought that the idea of Scripture being written during this intertestamental uh, time would not have made any sense since the prophetic office was no longer functioning. Uh, Josephus says this, From Artaxerxes to our own time, the complete history has been written, but has not been deemed worthy of equal credit with the earlier records because of the failure of the exact succession of the prophets. Or the Babylonian Talmud says, After the latter prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi had died, the Holy Spirit departed from Israel. So early Jews did not accept them as being part of their Bible. That's the first reason. The second reason Uh, is that the Apocryphal books are never said to have divine authority from any biblical author. No New Testament author quotes from the Apocrypha and calls it Scripture. Number three, it has historical, geographical, and theological errors. For example, the book of Judith says that Nebuchadnezzar was king over Assyria, when in reality he was king over Babylon. Tobit teaches justification by works, specifically paying alms. The wisdom of Solomon has God creating the universe from pre-existing matter rather than from nothing. The book of Sirach 42.14 says a man's wickedness is better than a woman's goodness. Women bring shame and disgrace. Number four, they don't claim to be scripture themselves. In fact, at least twice in the books of the Apocrypha, reference is made to how God has ceased to give revelation in their time. Uh, For instance, in the book of uh, Maccabees, 1 Maccabees uh, chapter four, it says, so they tore down the altar and put the stones in a suitable place on the temple hill where they were to be kept until a prophet should appear and decide what to do with them. In other words, there were no prophets in those days and thus no prophetic office and thus no scripture being written. Number five, Jerome himself who wrote the Vulgate said that it wasn't scripture in his preface. He included it Uh, He included the Apocrypha in the Vulgate, but he said it explicitly is not to be considered Scripture. This is another really big, important argument. Because one of the main arguments for their inclusion is that they're included in the Septuagint and the Vulgate. But the very translators of the Septuagint and the Vulgate themselves distinguished them from actual Scripture. And then number six, it wasn't until the Council of Trent... In 1546, that it was officially declared scripture, and even then it was a response to Protestantism. So that's the Apocrypha, books that are considered canonical by the Roman Catholic and or Greek Orthodox traditions, but not Protestants. Before we move on to the New Testament, there's one other quick question related to the Old Testament, and that is, what about the Dead Sea Scrolls? Well, what are those? What are the Dead Sea Scrolls? Were there a collection of religious writings by a Jewish sect called the Essenes? Founded a place outside of Jerusalem near the Dead Sea called Qumran. They were discovered in 1946 by a shepherd boy who's throwing a rock in some caves. When I was a kid, I remember I got in trouble because I threw a rock and broke someone's window. I discovered what it meant to get in trouble. But this shepherd kid threw a rock and he discovered the single most important archaeological manuscript find of the 20th century. Over the next few years, as they excavated the area, archaeologists found 1,400 original documents, some complete or nearly complete, such as the uh, Great Isaiah Scroll, which is about 23 feet, but most of them being fragmentary. There are about 100,000 fragments in all. And those documents dated from about 250 B.C. all the way to about uh, 65 A.D. But here's the significance. Here's what you need to know about the Dead Sea Scrolls. Before the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the oldest existing manuscripts of parts of the Hebrew Bible came from about 800 to 1000 AD. So the oldest existing manuscripts of parts of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, came from about 800 to 1000 AD. The oldest complete copy of the Hebrew Bible, uh, which is called the Leningrad or the St. Petersburg Codex, dates to about eighty-one, one uh, 1008 or so But then all of a sudden with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have scrolls dated 1,000 years earlier than those earliest copies, containing all or parts of every book of the Hebrew Bible with the exception of Esther. And incredibly, those copies were nearly identical with manuscripts from 1,000 years later, which should give us tremendous amount of confidence in the transmission process. In other words, in 1,000 years of being copied by hand, the copies of Scripture being passed down had not substantially changed. That's fascinating. That should give us a whole a lot of confidence in, uh, in the text of Scripture that has been handed down to us. So should the Dead Sea Scrolls be Scripture? Well, some are. Again, there were copies of nearly every book of the Old Testament, but not everything in those caves were Scripture. In addition to the actual biblical books, you had books about uh, the community life in Qumran, for instance. So you might think of uh, Dead Sea Scrolls like those plastic eggs that kids open for Easter. Sometimes you have a piece of candy corn left over from Halloween in there, but other times you get four quarters or you get a snack-sized Butterfinger or something like that. Whether that egg was a treasure or not depends on what was in it. Likewise, with, with each uh, clay jar that was found at Qumran, whether or not it was Scripture, depends on what was actually in that jar. So, that's the Old Testament. Those are some of the, uh, the issues that are related uh, to that. You have books that were uh, always considered canonical by, uh, by uh, everyone. You have uh, books that no one considered canonical. And then you have some books which some consider canonical. When it comes to the New Testament, unlike in the Old Testament, there are not three different versions of the New Testament canon. When it comes to the Eastern Orthodox or Roman Catholic traditions and Protestantism, all three branches of Christianity have the exact same New Testament, consisting of how many books? Old times Testament, three times nine, 27. Which means that there are no New Testament books that have ever been considered canonical by any church uh, tradition. There are no other New Testament books that have ever been considered canonical by any uh, church tradition. That said... This question of, uh, of books left out of the New Testament is where most of the skepticism regarding extra-biblical books comes about. So what extra-biblical books should we talk about regarding the New Testament? There are at least four different categories. The first one includes other apostolic letters. The second one, New Testament uh, pseudepigrapha. The third, early Christian writings. The fourth, later uh, religious writings. Let's look at each of those uh, in turn. First, other apostolic letters. Question for you, how many letters did the Apostle Paul write? Well, you might be tempted to say we have 13 letters from Romans to Philemon, assuming that we don't think that uh, Hebrews was Pauline. But it isn't as if Paul only wrote 13 letters his entire life. I'm sure he probably wrote a letter to his mom or dad or Maybe each Pharisee had a pen pal or something like that. I'm sure that Paul wrote more than 13 letters in his life. So what about other letters that he wrote to other churches? Well, this question isn't uh, hypothetical. It isn't speculative. In fact, we know for a uh, a fact that he wrote other letters. For instance, the book of Colossians references a letter to Laodicea. Colossians 4.16. And when this letter, that's the book of Colossians, has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. We don't have that letter. In addition to that, there are other Corinthian letters. Notice 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now that would make a lot of sense that that was 2 Corinthians, but this is in 1 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians is actually 2 Corinthians, which makes 2 Corinthians 3 Corinthians. Also, although some people think that there was another letter between 1st and 2nd Corinthians, which would mean that 2 Corinthians is actually 3rd and 3rd is actually 4th. Is that confusing? I hope so. But we don't have uh, an epistle to Laodicea. Or we don't have 3rd or 4th Corinthians in our Bibles. Is that some big scandal? Is that some big conspiracy? Is that something that we should be bothered by? Are you gasping there in your living room? That might seem scary, but did the church actually suppress those letters? Did they say something that contradicts other letters? Did Paul answer every single end time question that you may have? The fact is, I don't know. We could come up with all kinds of conspiracy theories, but they all just rely on arguments from silence. All we know is that Paul wrote other letters that aren't in our Bible today. Why not? Why aren't they there? Again, I don't know. Maybe the original manuscript never made it to its intended target. Maybe it did, but it was accidentally destroyed in a fire. Or maybe it was intentionally destroyed by Jews or Romans as they persecuted the early church. But at the end of the day, here's what I want you to know. It honestly doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if there were sixty letters written to uh, uh, to Corinth. The doctrine of canonicity doesn't mean that every single letter that an apostle wrote was inspired. If so, that would mean that Paul's letters to his mom should be in the Bible. So that's not what canonicity means. That's not what inspiration means. Rather. It means that some of the letters that they wrote were inspired and that all of those letters which were inspired were also canonized. How did the church know which to canonize? That's a complicated issue. Go and listen to our teaching on canonicity. But we have to rest in the fact that the sovereign spirit of God superintended the process such that we have every book that is necessary for our life and uh, godliness and that scripture as we have it and as it has been handed down to us is Sufficient. So, what should we do if someone were to definitively somehow find the epistle to the Laodiceans today? Or if someone were to find one of the lost Corinthian letters or some other letter and we could somehow magically authenticate that it was by Paul? Well, we would read it, we would appreciate it, but we would not consider it scripture. Again, go back and listen to Canonicity if you want more on that. But this category, This lost apostolic epistles category gives rise to the next. Imagine that someone is sitting down and they're reading the book of Colossians and they get to Colossians 4 and they read about this letter to Laodicea and they say, what a shame that we don't have the epistle to Laodicea. I wonder what it would have said. And then they get this brilliant idea, how about if I just take a crack at it? So that leads us into the category of New Testament pseudepigrapha. Remember what pseudepigrapha means. It's text written under a false name or a name uh, from someone famous from the past who is not the real author. This isn't just an Old Testament phenomenon. It was actually the case in the early church as, uh, as well. So the New Testament pseudepigrapha includes books such as the Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary, Magdalene, Acts of Paul and Thecla, uh, the Gospel of Mary, uh, etc. I mentioned in particular the apostle, uh, the epistle to Laodicea, because the early church fathers mentioned finding just such a book, although they rejected it because it was universally believed to be a forgery. So if someone apparently notices that Paul mentions this letter to Laodicea in Colossians, wonders why we don't have a copy of that, and decides to just write it himself and attach Paul's name to it. But the church recognizes the forgery. And so what do they do? They reject it. So what do you need to know about New Testament pseudepigrapha? The first thing that you need to know is that the practice itself is actually mentioned in the Bible. Look at Second Thess- Thessalonians 2. Second Thessalonians 2 verse 2 says this. Not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 17. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. So even in the first century, people are forging documents as if they are apostolic, as if they're by Paul or Peter or James or John or whoever it might be. Paul mentions these letters that are seeming to come from him, which is why he personally writes in his own greeting at the end. Paul probably, for the bulk of the letter, for the body of the letter, he probably used what's called an amanuensis, which is a secretary of sorts who would actually write the letter out by hand. But Paul would then take it from them and sign it personally. And apparently something about his signature was so distinctive that it couldn't be forged that's the first thing that you need to know is that uh, the practice of pseudepigrapha is mentioned in the Bible. The second thing you need to know is that there is absolutely no evidence that the early church ever knowingly accepted a pseudonymous uh, work as authoritative. In fact, the opposite is true. Where there was any sort of suspicion of a false writing, the church universally rejected it. Look at the following quotes from the, uh, the early church. Serapion, who's a bishop of Antioch around 200 AD, says, For our part, brethren, we receive both Peter and the other apostles as Christ, but the writings which falsely bear their names we reject. Or Eusebius, writing in the 4th century, he says, Certain writings are brought forward by heretics under the name of the apostles. They include gospels such as those of Peter, Peter, Thomas and Matthias and some others as well, or acts such as those of Andrew and John and other apostles, none of these have been deemed worthy of citation in the writings of any in the succession of churchmen. and Indeed, the stamp of their phraseology differs widely from the apostolic style, and the opinion and policy of their contents are as dissonant as possible from true orthodoxy, showing clearly that these are figments of heretics." Therefore, they are not to be reckoned even among spurious books, but should be shunned as altogether wrong and impious. So E. Earl Ellis says this, In the patristic church, uh, apostolic pseudepigrapha, when discovered, were excluded from the church's canon. This applied whether or not pseudepigrapha were uh, orthodox or heretical. In other words, it didn't matter if the document contained, contained these grave heretical errors. To the early church. Why not? Because the very fact that it was pseudepigraphal was an error. According to the early church, they would say if a letter starts out, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and it was indeed not by the apostle Paul, then that undermines the very nature and character of Scripture itself, because Scripture is inerrant. And so the very fact that it was a a forgery, the very fact that it was pseudepigraphal itself, would uh, have uh, made it worthy of being rejected from the canon of Scripture. So, why aren't pseudepigraphal books included? Because they were forgeries and lies and thus unworthy of recognition as inspired documents that were by nature authoritative and inerrant. By the way, this argument also implies that we should have great confidence that when a book bears Paul's name, it's authentic. Because the church was very passionate about not allowing forgeries to be viewed as authentic. Speaking of New Testament books such as First Timothy or Ephesians that liberal scholars say weren't written by, the, uh, by Paul, the ESV Study Bible says this, It is prob- uh, problematic to argue that these works were written under a false name since the early church clearly excluded from the apostolic canon any works they thought to be pseudonymous. While critics point to the common practice of uh, pseudonymous writings in the ancient world, they usually fail to point out that this practice, though common in the culture, was not common in personal letters and was categorically rejected by the early church. And there's a couple of uh, places that it mentions there. Eusebius wrote that when it was discovered that a church elder had composed such a work, the Acts of Paul, which included a purported uh, Pauline letter, Third Corinthians, The offending elder was removed from his office. So, accepting as scripture letters that lie about their origin is also a significant ethical problem. Thus, there is a good basis for affirming the straightforward claim of these letters as authentically written by Paul. So, understanding the church's awareness of forgeries and categorical rejection of them not only helps us to have confidence in the writings in the New Testament that purport to be by an apostle but also help us to understand why other books that claim to be by an apostle were not included in the canon of Scripture. Speaking of other books, a significant number of such pseudepigraphal works are what are called Gnostic Gospels. What are the Gnostic Gospels? They're a collection of books that were found uh, beginning in 1945 at Nag Hammadi in Egypt. Uh, A number of ancient documents uh, were found there and they were deemed the Gnostic Gospels. And ever since then... People have been intrigued by the subject and the idea of some sort of grand conspiracy in early Christianity, especially in the past 30 years with books and movies like The Da Vinci Code, which promotes this idea of an alternate Christianity in the early church. Whereas traditional Christianity, Orthodox Christianity, the Christianity that we see in our churches today was dogmatic And intolerant and elitist and mean spirited. On the other hand, Gnosticism was open minded and all welcoming and tolerant and loving. Well, the problem with that reconstruction is that just about every part of it is wrong. Where to begin? Well, first, Gnostic Gospels weren't suppressed by the early church. That's a big oops. How do we know that they weren't stifled in some big conspiracy? Because they didn't even exist at the time. All of the so-called Gnostic Gospels were written well after the death of the last apostle. Remember, we're talking about these under the section on Pseudepigrapha. So the Gospel, the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas, wasn't written by Thomas. The Gnostic Gospel of Judas wasn't written by Judas. Remember that whole suicide thing? It's kind of hard to write a Gospel when you're dead. So the Gospel of uh, Philip, for example, has been dated to the 4th century. The Gospel of Barnabas from the 16th century was written in Spanish and Italian. In fact, the very earliest of the Gnostic Gospels has been dated to uh, around the mid-2nd century, nearly 100 years after most of the New Testament documents were written, and half a century after the last of the books were written. So why aren't the Gnostic Gospels included in the New Testament? Among other reasons... Because they didn't even exist at the time that the books of the New Testament were first circulating. Claiming that the early church suppressed those by leaving them out of the Bible is like saying that George Washington suppressed George Bush by not choosing him as his vice president. The timeline doesn't add up. Second thing you need to know about the Gnostic Gospels is that they were never accepted by the church. There was no power struggle between Gnostics and traditionalists for dominancy. Quite simply, Gnostic teachings were known within the early church and categorically and universally rejected. For example, uh, Irenaeus wrote against Gnosticism uh, as early as the 2nd century. Third and most important for understanding why this was no grand conspiracy, the Gnostic Gospels don't just present alternative accounts of Jesus, but actually heretical teachings that portray an entirely different Jesus and an entirely different gospel. For instance, the Jesus of the Gnostic Gospels, he wasn't human. He didn't actually die on a cross or rise from the dead. not sure if you realize this, but that's a pretty important distinction. That's not two Christians arguing over millennial theories. Whether or not Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead is a pretty big deal to Christians. So let me give you a couple of other examples of this. First, from the Gospel of Thomas. It has this encouraging Easter message where Jesus uh, uh, is talking to Simon Peter. Simon Peter said to him, let Mary leave us for women are not worthy of life. Now uh, Simon Peter in the gospel says some crazy things. So maybe you think Jesus is about to tear into him. Remember when Jesus says, get behind me, Satan? But in the gospel of Thomas, Jesus instead says, I myself shall lead her in order to make her male. so that that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males for every woman who will make herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. Remember how some people like to talk about how inclusive and open-minded the Gnostics were. Next time someone tells you that, just quote that to them. Gnostic Jesus is so inclusive that he includes females who everyone knows are inferior to men. In the gospel of Judas, Jesus tells Judas, You will exceed all of them, for you will sacrifice the man that clothes me. Who is the hero in the Gospel of Judas? Judas! He's the best of all of the disciples. He doesn't betray Jesus, he's actually in on it from the beginning. But one of my favorites is called the Infancy Gospel of Thomas. You know all that stuff from after Jesus is born? Until he shows up on the scene calling few people to repentance. You ever wonder what Jesus was doing? You have in the Gospels uh, not much that actually covers Jesus' childhood. Well, what was he doing? The infancy Gospel of Thomas fills in the gaps. In one section, Jesus is playing with a puddle of water. And a kid comes up and stirs the water with a stick. So what does Jesus do? Turn the other cheek. No, he hadn't learned that yet. Instead, he calls the kid insolent and godless and kills him by making him shrivel up like a raisin. In another account, someone accidentally runs into Jesus. So Jesus kills him. Then the neighbors complain to Joseph and Mary that Jesus is being a murderous nuisance. So Jesus strikes his neighbors blind. In another account, Jesus is playing with his buddy, a kid named Zeno, which sounds super Jewish, And his buddy falls down the stairs and dies. And so his parents accuse Jesus of killing him. So what does Jesus do? He raises Zeno from the dead and asks him, did I push you down the stairs? You know who uh, teenage Jesus in this story reminds me of in all of these stories? He's like Loki in the early Thor movies or other trickster gods of the Greeks, which makes sense because Gnosticism is really this attempt to blend Christian characters and Christian themes with Greek philosophical and theological constructs. I think if I were to go home today and I were to ask my three year old daughter to write a story about Jesus as a kid, I think she would come up with something like the infancy gospel of Thomas. So you see, this is no conspiracy. We love conspiracy theories, we like the idea of some grand scheme to suppress the poor innocent Gnostics. But as F.F. Bruce writes, the Gnostic schools lost because they deserved to lose. Why did they deserve to lose? Because they didn't present the real Jesus or the real Gospels. Christians fight over a lot, but whether Jesus was really human or really died on the cross or really rose from the dead isn't among those things. So the fight between Orthodox Christianity and Gnosticism isn't the story between two equally compelling visions of Christianity It's a story of a fight between orthodoxy and heresy. So that's pseudepigrapha in general, Gnostic Gospels in particular. Why aren't they in the Bible? Because they weren't uh, inspired, inerrant, or authoritative. In short, because they aren't scripture. No orthodox Christian group ever uh, considered that possibility because it's so obviously not the case. But this next category is a bit trickier. What do we do with books that aren't heretical but are actually helpful? In this category, we would have early Christians writing, uh, Christian writings like the Shepherd of Hermas from the early 2nd century, the Didache from maybe the end of the 1st century, the writings of church fathers like Ignatius, Irenaeus, Justin Martyr, Tertullian, and Clement. Zach talked about some of these a couple of years ago when we taught on uh, bibliology in a lesson called Books Outside the Bible. So listen to that for some more info on these in particular. But in general, these works are neither heretical nor canonical. They're helpful but not inspired. In a sense, you already have a category for that in your own mind. Every time you pick up a commentary, every time you read the notes in the ESV study Bible, anytime you read a book by John Piper or J.I. Packer or Calvin or somebody like that, they're edifying, they're encouraging, they're helpful, they're generally orthodox, but not inspired, not inerrant, and therefore not canonical. In general, the, the church had a few key attributes that they looked for in assessing whether or not a work was canonical or, and it included things like apostolicity. Is there a reasonable belief that the letter was by an apostle or connected to, uh, to someone in close proximity to an apostle? And universality, is a work being used throughout the entire church or is it just a book that's only being used in one particular church or one particular area? In orthodoxy, does a uh, work promote the true Jesus and the true gospel? Now, These criteria were helpful, but at the same time, it might be a little bit misleading because you might then be tempted to think that the church just chose which books were and were not Scripture, when in reality what we see historically and theologically is that Scripture kind of imposed itself on the church. It wasn't so much a process of choosing the canon as recognizing the canon, rather than crediting the church with discovering which books were Scripture, we should instead credit the Spirit, who not only inspired the Scripture, but superintended the process of canonization, gave wisdom to the early church, as Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. So early non-apostolic Christian writings were helpful, they were encouraging, if you have a chance to read them, I would encourage you to do so, but not as Scripture, because they aren't inspired or inerrant. One last category, what about later religious writings? This would include the writings of other religions that borrow from uh, Christianity and Judaism, such as the Quran, which was written in about the 600s, or the religious writings of cults, such as uh, the Book of Mormon for the Latter-day Saints, the New World Translation of the Bible by Jehovah's Witnesses, Science and Health by uh, Mary Baker Eddy in the Christian Science Movement, or Dianetics by L. Ron Hubbard in Scientology, also known as the Testament of Travolta or the Tom Cruise canon. What do you need to know about all of these sorts of books? Well, obviously, all of these were written well after the Bible. And in addition to that, all of them actually contradict the Bible. We're going to talk about a number of those contradictions uh, later this semester as we consider world religions and cults. But when it comes to their religious writings, are they inspired? No. Are they helpful? Well, it depends on what you mean by that. They're historically helpful, in understanding these groups, perhaps for apologetics purposes, it's helpful to have read the material of the group that you're uh, talking to. But for the purpose of life and godliness, they're irrelevant, given that the Bible itself is sufficient. So there you have it. What should we think about extra-biblical books, including the Apocrypha and pseudepigrapha, like the Gnostic Gospels? What should we think of later religious works? Is there some big conspiracy That's certainly what you might read on the internet, but once you pull back the curtain, once you get behind the smoke and the flash of such claims, you realize it's really much ado about nothing. There are some difficult questions that Christians face when it comes to the canon and the historical process of recognizing which books bore the stamp of authenticity, but all of those questions have really good answers if we're willing to dig down deep into good arguments. If we can help in that process, please let us know. Church, we love you. We miss you uh, in this season during this pandemic. Thanks for listening today. Let's uh, pray. Father, I thank you for your word. We confess that man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. So I confess that I want to treasure it. I want our people to long for your word and to cherish your word and to study it and to ponder it and meditate on it. May you give us an increased love for and trust in your inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative, and sufficient scripture. And in it, may we have eyes to see and ears to hear the glory of your resurrected Son. We ask this because you're a good Father and you give good gifts even in the midst of this global pandemic. So we ask for hope and courage and joy and sanctification in Christ's name. Amen.